You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Welcome, everyone. Firstly, welcome to the inaugural uh, Philosophy on the Ground seminar series, which is uh, brought to you, so to speak, by the University of Sydney Philosophy Society in, in combination here and in great support by the Sydney Environment Institute. The topic of our talk tonight is changing values in a changing climate, which, as its name suggests, uh, is sort of asking questions about how humans relate to the environment and, and sort of what are the objects of, of ethical responsibility that we might owe to the environment and sort of looking at uh, the area of environmental humanities more generally. And it's in this vein that the sort of philosophy on the ground series that the, that the philosophy society that Phil Sock is trying to uh, start at the moment is really with a view to taking philosophy out of sort of sandstone halls and, and showing how it relates to everyday issues and 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 problems and and uh, and things which confront people just on a day-to-day basis and showing how sort of philosophy, philosophical reflection um, in a very practical sense can help us. Um, before I get any further, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which Sydney University in Sydney is built. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and particularly extend my respect to any Indigenous Australians um, that are uh, tuning in with us today. Um, as we meet virtually, which is perhaps not ideal, but sort of the best we can do uh, in the circumstances, um, it might be, uh, so I've encouraged all of you to reflect on uh, the traditional custodians of the land where you are, and particularly in the context of our discussion today on the environment, on environmental ethics, I'd like to acknowledge the, the ancient connections which the Indigenous Australians have with the land and sea and their practices of working with the environment uh, rather than against it. Um, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome and, and a lot of gratitude to our two uh, speakers today, Dr Killian Quigley and Professor Danielle Selmeyer. Um, who are very excited to, to have, who are, who are both members of the Sydney Environment Institute, who's provided wonderful support in, in uh, coordinating and organising this event. And we're very excited to have two uh, experts uh, to shed some light on the, on the areas of environmental humanities and ethics. Um, the way that this event will work, which has been outlined, um, in, in this sort of different promo material is that it is meant to be a, a conversation um, which I will moderate between uh, Killian and Danielle um, who will share some, some thoughts and will work through some different topics uh, and, some, and, and issues in the, in the area of environmental humanities and environmental ethics. Um, and then at about 7pm based on sort of uh, um, dependent on how the discussion is going and, and sort of uh, working organically on that basis will open the conversation up to any of your questions, which I'm sure maybe you've come with questions or I'm sure the discussion itself will, will um, trigger many a thought. Um, so I'll just briefly set the scene a bit before handing over uh, to Danielle and Killian, who will be doing most of the talking during the event. Um, I don't think it 
I think we can all agree that Australia really is is unique. It's a quite unique country in that it is beset by environmental extremes in every sense of the word. And we're even just looking at the last year provides uh, sort of adequate evidence of that if anyone needed any. So with our bushfires uh, occurring over last summer, we had 17 million hectares of land in Australia burnt, including 6.7 of the land area of New South Wales. And rough estimates, as much as one can estimate these type of things, show that there were over 1 billion mammals, birds and reptiles killed. And as I was sort of preparing this, this introduction today, I, I realised with some embarrassment that I'd forgotten that up, right after those bushfires, there was quite extreme flooding in northern Queensland in Townsville. And I think given everything that's going on this year, it can be easy to... Well, it's easy and unfortunate to forget all of these type of catastrophes uh, that we've experienced. Another popular or, or, or common symbol of environmental catastrophe, which and particularly in Australian context, is the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. And a brief look at some of the statistics in that area show that, for example, in 2016, about 30% of corals died due to uh, fluctuations in ocean temperatures caused by carbon pollution. And so we see that as Australia is sort of practically in the throes of these environmental disasters that this hasn't gone unnoticed by the population. You know, like many countries around the world is uh, have a sort of growing uh, movement of climate protests that have taken off uh, also in Australia. Uh, the federal election last year was dubbed by some commentators as the climate election, uh, as, as climate change was really a, a fundamental difference, perhaps, between the two, or at least in terms of what, what they said, a fundamental difference in the approaches of the two main parties. And we can query whether the climate lost that election. Um, and I think it's also important uh, notions of climate justice and, and climate change in the context of broader social movements towards popular justice. So for example, we've seen uh, the popular calls for racial justice in Australia and particularly in the US and around the world and a general movement towards, uh, I guess, discrediting the, the current model and, and its distribution of wealth and, and, and the distribution of wealth which, which it's created. And I think in all of this, we can see that it's a timely moment to stop and think about our relationship between, between each other, vis-a-vis -vis the environment, between humans and the environment, how we perceive environmental catastrophe, and also the objects and narratives of ethical responsibility vis-a-vis uh, -vis the environment and unique challenges that this poses. So that's enough from me on, on that front. I, I, I'd like to now hand over to first Danielle and then Killian, our, our speakers for tonight, just to give a brief background on uh, your work and, um, and your sort of broad areas of interest. Thank you, Sam, um, for, the, for the introduction and also for all the work that you have done in curating this event. And I also want to very much thank um, my colleagues at the Sydney Environment Institute always for their work in curating beautiful events. 
uh, and really nice to see some people I know, some people I don't know, and to share the floor with my colleague, Killian. Um, I just want to acknowledge that I am on the Darawa lands and waters on the south coast of New South Wales, and both to acknowledge the traditional custodians and uh, to express my gratitude for uh, the care for country that has made it possible for me to live where I live amongst all the beings that I live with. Um, so very briefly, um, I started my life um, in a philosophy department, my academic life that is. Um, I wasn't born into a philosophy department. Um, and so philosophy has been a great love for me uh, for a long time. Uh, but very quickly realised that I needed to be um, in the world and so moved into working as a human rights advocate um, out of my work on justice in philosophy and spent many years doing that at the Australian Human Rights Commission and then working with grassroots organisations in Australia and in Central America um, and then came back to the University of Sydney and continued my life as a human rights scholar. Um, but a few years ago, I realised that, and this is very relevant to what we're talking about, I realised that um, the heart of my life concerns and my academic concerns had always been around issues of justice, violence, um, suffering, and that the boundary that I placed around my work, that I was concerned with the types of violence that humans inflicted on other humans or the injustices uh, amongst humans was a very arbitrary place um, to put that boundary, that we are very clearly uh, living lives that are inflicting grave forms of injustice on beings other than humans, and that um, the, the reach of justice was in fact much broader than the reach of my work. And so at that point, um, I entered the fields of um, animal justice and environmental justice as a novice, um, but with the generosity of colleagues, um, was able to, to educate myself somewhat in that field. And so now I, I, I identify as working in a field that um, I somewhat problematically call multi-species justice, um, but really trying to think about uh, this entanglement of all earth beings and how do we currently live together in ways that um, distribute the, the benefits and burdens highly unevenly and how could we live together such that that was not the case. I think the other thing I want to say is that uh, there is very little divide for me between my life and my work. Um, I live in a multi-species community, so I live in the rainforest um, with and amongst um, many other animals. So the first part of my day today was trying to make decisions about how to stop um, a pig destroying um, some, um, some beautiful um, forest fern trees. And so um, justice really hits the ground. Multi-species justice really hits the ground when you try and think about how do you support the flourishing of soil, and trees and animals and humans um, when we're all living together. So it's, um, it's both very abstract for me and very concrete. I think that's enough. Wonderful. And Killian, would you like to give a, a similar background? Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, thanks, Danny, and thanks, Sam, Genevieve, and everyone. And thanks so much to everyone who's tuning in. Um, 
I'd also like to acknowledge um, that I'm speaking to you from among the unceded um, airs, waters, and lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, I was born, um, well, I wasn't really born, but, but I come from an English department. Um, I did my postgrad in the US, which is also where I happened to spend most of my life. Um, while I was doing that, I developed a kind of postgraduate research project that was asking about the relationship between landscape theory and, sea, and what we might call seascape theory at a kind of um, significant point in the development of those theories in the West, that's namely the 18th century in Britain and France, a period that the field of environmental aesthetics sometimes looks back, looks back on now um, as generative in some interesting and um, arguably problematic um, and consequential ways. Um, it was my kind of um, dumb luck really to wind up meeting some folks from the Sydney Environment Institute in 2014, when in the course of a, an interdisciplinary research trip to the Great Barrier Reef, um, to the south, some southern islands in the Great Barrier Reef, I began to get a sort of um, clear sense of how the questions that I was asking about um, marine aesthetics, marine poetics, and marine ontologies um, were important for thinking about conservation priorities, for thinking about multi-species entanglements, and so on. Um, I came to SEI in 2017, um, three years ago, to begin as a postdoc, and my work since then has, has perforce become um, progressively more interdisciplinary and collaborative. Um, to describe it in its most, sort of in the most general terms possible, my work is interested in the sort of ethical, methodological question of what happens when we, we take an other than what some scholars call a terra-centric um, approach to asking and answering some of the questions that we're all interested in. Um, a lot of my work deals with cultural histories of the undersea. Um, I've also recently been, been thinking and writing a lot about the meanings of seascape, specifically in the context of anthropogenic sea level rise. Um, I'm particularly interested there in the way that different cultural affordances um, lead to different ways of thinking about what happens to categories like place and home in the course of sea level rise. Um, and right now, at the moment, um, I've, also, I've, I've been, been researching and writing about underwater wreckage and the way that, that the material histories of the oceans um, are not only anthropogenic, but also, of course, inflected um, by the invertebrate and other lives um, that make them home. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. I'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much to both Danny and Killian. I hope everyone can see how lucky we are to have two uh, people with really fascinating backgrounds uh, here tonight to share with us some of their insights on environmental ethics and environmental humanities more broadly. Um, so without further ado, I think it, it would be a perfect time to proceed to the sort of more substantive discussion that we've got uh, lined up for tonight. And just to pick up on something that, that Danielle said in her introduction, the first thing that I think would be a useful uh, sort of way to set the scene of environmental ethics is, is to look at this idea of how humans perceive themselves as distinct from the environment and the, you know, the notion of the other in philosophy is often uh, implied in a sort of uh, 
intra-human way, if you will. Um, but this notion of human exceptionalism, uh, as I think you said, Danny, in your introduction, is humans as one thing and the environment perhaps as, a, as another even inferior thing uh, is something which has really become entrenched in our thinking. So I wondered if you could just, uh, just start us off with uh, a bit of an elaboration on, on that phenomenon. Um, yeah, so given that Killian used the dreaded word ontology, um, <laughs> I'm going to use that word um, but try and explain what I mean. So I don't think that human exceptionalism is psychological. I think it's ontological. And what I mean by that is that it's not like we are constituted as humans and then we layer on with this idea of human exceptionalism. It's, it's in the bones. We, to be a human is to be a human in the West, let's say. I'm not saying this is the only way of being human, but to be a human the way that our culture is human is to be different from and better than uh, in, and to exist in a completely different realm um, which allows us then then creates uh, the background permission for us to treat everything else as resource that we can extract for our own benefit um, so that's just to, uh, just I, I just want to reinforce the status that this type of exceptionalism has um, so where does it, where can we trace it um, in the history of philosophy? Um, well, a, a shorter answer would be where can we not trace it in the history of philosophy? So if we go back to, um, to Plato in the Phaedrus, he sets out a hierarchy already of different types of humans. Um, and you can see the beginning of the way in which the hierarchy works. So the more kind of spirit you have, the more mind you have, the higher you are, the more body you have, the lower you are. Um, and then Aristotle in his system of biological typology um, then extends that beyond humans. So there's rational humans, sensitive animals, vegetative plants, and then there's a kind of similar hierarchy within humans. Um, then if we kind of flip from philosophy to theology, um, right at the beginning, I'm gonna read Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, of the heaven, over the beasts and over all earth. And we could go on about the biblical legitimations for human domination. So then you get um, a kind of refraction of this Greek conception of um, the hierarchical ordering of the universe um, through Neoplatonism, and we're doing a quick 2000 year tour here, um, through into medieval theology where you get this kind of notion of the great chain of being. And there are some beautiful paintings, I'm sure everyone's familiar with that, where you have God at the top and then the angels and then the humans and then the different sorts of animals and then the plants and the stones down the bottom. Um, so this is really important, this notion that there's something at the top that kind of has an absolute status of truth and then the closer you are to that, the higher you are. And of course humans, um, because we made the graph, we're always at the top. Um, so for example, um, uh, the 15th century Italian philosopher Pico della Mirandella 
talks about the fact that humans, what's wonderful about us is that we can move up or down. We can be more body, so we're more beastly, or we can be more angelic when we're more spirit. Um, then when you get into modernity, um, Descartes hit a bit of a roadblock with this exceptionalism because when they started to cut humans open and cut animals open, what did they find? They found that we looked very, very similar. Um, so then there's a problem, right? Once we start to get a material conception of reality and it, things look like they're the same, how do you justify this, this claim that we're so radically different? And I want to read because the quotes are just so wonderful. I pulled them out for tonight. So this is um, two brief quotes from Descartes. The first one, seeing that a dog is made of flesh, you perhaps think that everything which is in it also exists, is in you, also exists in the dog. But I observe no mind at all in the dog and hence believe there is nothing to be found in a dog that resembles the things I recognise in a mind. So that's from the meditations. And this is even better. This is from the discourse and method. Second only to the error of those who deny God, there is no error that leads my weak minds further from the straight path of virtue than that of imagining that the souls of beasts are the, of the same nature as ours. And hence, that after this present life, we have nothing to fear or to hope any more than flies and ants do. When we know how different the beasts are from us, we are better placed to understand the arguments proving that our soul is of a nature entirely independent from the body and thus not liable to die with it. So the worst thing you can do after not believing in God is to think that we're the same as animals. So you get to kind of see what's at stake in this. Um, then um, I'm not going to keep on reading quotes to you, but in Kant, the justification becomes that humans have reason and beasts and other beings don't have reason. And then in the 20th century, this morphs into um, a range of other affordances that human beings supposedly have. Uh, one of the most important ones is the capacity to, to have language. So um, beasts make noises, we make language. And so John Searle, important 20th century philosopher of language, um, talks about the fact that we can, because we have language, we can have complex propositions, like we can make hypotheticals, we can imagine other worlds, other animals can't do that. So, so the justifications change as you move down through history, but what's really important is that this distinction between spirit or mind or reason and body remains really central to the organising logic of the hierarchy. And so that also has implications for the type of hierarchies you see amongst humans. So women, people of colour are lower in the hierarchy because we're more embodied and less of mind. Um, now, I just want to, before I kind of finish on this negative doom and gloom note, like it's all a really bad story. As um, Donna Haraway reminds us, it matters what stories we use to tell stories. And the story that we tend to tell of our own Western tradition is this, um, this absolute monolithic uh, narrative of human exceptionalism. And in fact, there are, um, there are many counter trends and there are counter trends um, in particular writers like Voltaire or de Montaigne who have wonderful passages um, challenging Descartes and challenging these, these types of um, important human exceptionalist texts. 
But what interests me are also the counter trends within the texts themselves that are used to justify human exceptionalism. So um, those of you who are not biblical scholars may not know that right after Genesis 1 is actually Genesis 2. And Genesis 2, I won't read the whole thing, but it says, and the eternal God planted a garden eastward of Eden, and the eternal God took man and placed him in the garden to serve it and to keep it, right? So this is completely contrary instead of instructions about how we're supposed to relate, have dominion over it in the first text and serve it and keep it in the second text. Um, and the other text that I've written about in this vein that I, I think is really a beautiful um, opening up of these questions is King Lear. So for those of you who um, vaguely remember the play, um, when King Lear abdicates the throne, and um, one of his daughters, Cordelia, um, doesn't swear love the way that she wants him to. He then leaves the throne to, um, to the two evil sisters. And once the sovereign order is out of place, everything goes awry. So there's a tempest and all the animals come out and Lear goes mad and goes and lives with the animals. And so the normal narrative about Leah is this descent from... Um, reason and sovereignty into this very kind of animal madness that he moves into. Um, but I think there's a very different reading of the text. And I'm just going to read like one, two quotes from it that I think really bring this out. Um, this is when he is, um, he's in a hovel and he sees um, Edgar, who has also gone out to live with the beasts and in the wild. And he says, um, thou owest the worm no silk, the beast no hide, the sheep no wool, the cat no perfume. Ha! Huh. Here's three ones that are sophisticated. The worm, the beast, the sheep, the cat. Thou art the human, thou human art the thing itself. Unaccommodated man is no more but such a poor, bare, forked animal thou art, right? So he's actually turning back to the human and saying, you're the one who has the lack. You're the one who doesn't have all of these affordances to survive in the world. And then at the very end of the play, um, when he reunites with Cordelia, his daughter, and they're getting taken off to prison where they're presumably going to be killed, Cordelia says... Um, oh, you know, oh, whoa, what is to become of us? Everything is terrible. And Leah says to her, no, 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 come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and I'll ask of thee forgiveness. And so we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies, the people in the court, whose losses and whose wins, whose ins and whose outs, and, who, and we will take upon ourselves the mystery of things as if we were God's spies and we'll wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of great ones and we will see the ebb and flow of the moon. So I think there's this, this beautiful kind of counter-narrative that rather than the fall from grace, he's actually looking back and seeing the absurdity of human life and the possibility of a very different way of being amongst the birds and the butterflies. So my point being that we can, we can either tell one story 
about the only way of being human in the West is this way of human exceptionalism. But I think it's always interesting to look at what are the, what are the alternative genealogies? What are the counter trends that, uh, we can, that I like to think of as the seeds that we want to water for a different way of being human within our, within our own um, intellectual history? Thank you very much, Danny. No, that's, that's wonderful to, to get. I think it's really important to appreciate the background to this way of thinking that, that we accept, as, as you say, Danny, as a sort of ontological truth in itself, uh, and to realise perhaps that doesn't have to be or isn't the only way of, of thinking about these things. Um, Killian, I'd like to throw over to you now uh, in terms of your work, um, particularly uh, in regards, as you were saying, the sort of relationship between uh, landscapes and seascapes, and that well, another reason why uh, sort of human exceptionalism is such an easy uh, uh, approach to take for thinking about the environment is because the environment is so distinct and so foreign to us, uh, perhaps particularly now as to develop Western society. Um, and I wonder whether you had any thoughts on this sort of, these ethics of relationality and, and a sort of, uh, any way to sort of trouble uh, this idea of just humans being completely uniformly distinct from the environment. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Um, so, I mean, Danny, Danny's given us so much, um, so many great things to to think about here. I mean, one of the um, one of the places that I think it might make sense to to bridge here is is around the ways in which, um, particularly can particularly contemporary um, theorists and other practitioners in the environmental humanities, in feminist studies and elsewhere have found oceans and other waters really interesting sites for thinking about the human as a figure, um, as a culturally contingent figure. Um, and that's, that gets to something that you just brought up um, a minute ago, Sam, which is that I think the ocean for a lot of sort of contemporary environmental humanities theory presents a space that is on the one hand, in obviously and intuitively um, entangled with humans, part of us, um, supportive of humans, um, a side of culture, a side of labor, a side of imagination and so on. Um, and at the same time, um, an environment in which because of our physical affordances, um, we are actually at the end of the day, not able to, to survive for long periods of time. So a lot of contemporary thinkers um, find the space, find the spaces of the ocean generative for troubling the, the idea of, of um, well, let's put it this way, for estranging the figure of the human, right? Or for looking to the ocean for an estranging space that might be generative of unexpected and challenging forms of relation. Um, so just to give you um, one example of what I mean, um, the feminist literary and blue humanities scholar Stacey Alamo writes, quote, submersing ourselves, descending rather than transcending, is essential, lest our tendencies toward human exceptionalism prevent us from recognizing that, like our hermaphroditic aquatic evolutionary ancestor, we dwell within and as part of a dynamic, interactive, emergent material world that demands new forms of ethical thought and practice. And I think a lot of 
the forms that I've been interested in lately are arising at the intersection of uh, work in the environmental humanities and, and, and work in feminism. Um, our great colleague, Astrida Namanis, here at the University of Sydney, has a wonderful book called Bodies of Water, Post-Human Feminist Phenomenology, which thinks about what Astrida calls the hydro commons, right? The ways in which um, wateriness is shared across lots of different kinds of water bodies, not in homogenous ways, but in complicated and uneven ways. She thinks about that figure of the hydro commons as kind of providing um, another, right, in some ways alternative lens for thinking about connectivity, right? Um, just to name one other sort of example of this is the idea of, of, of transcorporeality that a lot of people working in sort of critical ocean studies think about, which are the ways that these human bodies that we've been talking about are not bounded, right? That waters and other materials flow across them. And so again, that this is another sort of useful paradigm for thinking about how um, flows between human bodies and things external to them are always moving backwards and forwards and ebbs and flows. So yeah, those are a couple of couple of sort of uh, wonderful. Thank you. Things. I thought it was interesting what you said to sort of um, draw some connections between what you you were saying, Danny, and and you, Killian. Is it's interesting to see how sort of I mean, with human exceptionalism comes a degree of sort of arrogance about uh, appreciation of the human condition, the fact that we are always thinking up, as you were saying, Danny, and this notion of a hierarchy from, you know, the divine to the angels. And that we, we perceive that as desirable, whereas, whereas Killian, you were speaking about the importance of quite literally in regards to the ocean, sort of thinking down almost and appreciating the depth of what goes on around us. And I think it's easy perhaps to get caught up in a certain I don't know, arrogance of thought. Uh, I guess that, that's part and parcel of this idea of human exceptionalism. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, now that we've spoken about the divide between, you know, the perceived divide, at least, between humans and the environment and, and where that comes from, is how this divide is being challenged uh, in contemporary society and what are the sort of forces that are driving home the fact to us more and more um, that what we do does impact on the environment that we do owe and we must owe responsibilities to the environment for the well-being and longevity of not only ourselves but of our planet uh, more generally um, and i think i'd like to start by talking about when we're talking about sort of how we perceive environmental destruction how we perceive environmental change i think a useful starting point is to say really that this this it's driven by a growing sort of distribution of, of scientific knowledge in society. And that was sort of, uh, at least from a, a popular perspective, where it first came from. For example, if you look at um, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, this is, this is uh, one of the first modern sort of popular works on environmental awareness. And it's sort of the, the idea of bringing scientific knowledge into the popular psyche. Uh, and that's, I think, become a more and more common way of, of confronting people with this idea that we owe responsibilities to the environment because, hey, look at all the damage that we're doing and look at the empirical reality of the impact we're having on the environment. And so just looking at a, at a high level summary uh, this afternoon provided by the UN about some statistics, we see the phrases such as, or statistics such as, since 1980, greenhouse gas emissions have doubled um, and that 
this has raised global average temperatures by 0.7 of a degree. Uh, facts like this are becoming a more and more common in the public discourse as a way to drive home environmental awareness. Um, the UN is also talking about accelerating uh, rates of extinction on a global scale. A little bit closer to home, we've seen obviously in the bushfires that generated a lot of discussion about environmental destruction and images of environmental catastrophe. And in the aftermath, uh, there's been a debate in New South Wales about uh, particularly laws around um, protection of koala habitations. Um, and we, with, for example, the WWF predicting that koalas are heading to extinction by 2050, that between, uh, you know, the decade from 1990, 42% of uh, sort of forest habitat for koalas were wiped out. So we see that we're being more and more confronted with uh, sort of empirical ideas of environmental catastrophe. And this is coupled by as well sort of images that we see in the media, like, for example, if we go back to the uh, sort of the the big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. That was when, for example, sort of seabirds drenched in oil um, was sort of used as a real symbol to drive home to, to, to you know, the popular psyche almost uh, the impact of human destruction. And Killian, I wanted to go back to you as well because I know that you've written a bit about how sort of images of environmental catastrophe are used uh, and, and processed by uh, uh, by people more generally to, um, yes, and, and just and sort of construct narratives in, of environmental catastrophe. Yeah, that's great, Sam. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, so I, as you say, I'm really interested in sort of spectacles um, of climate change, um, of environmental devastation, of environmental change. Um, and I think that in many ways, these spectacles can do really important work, but um, as I think an increasing number of, of, of people are pointing out, reckoning with the sort of um, submerged um, forms and conventions that those spectacles work through is definitely worth, worth doing. And I think that as, as sort of folks working in these areas, one of the things that we can do is equip, our, equip ourselves and equip one another um, with tools that are attentive to, um, particularly to spectacles that may not perform in exactly the ways we expect them to. Um, about a year ago, I was doing some work um, in New York on, with, with, with a kind of research and artistic collective who, who work on, on New York's um, shorelines and waterways vis-a-vis -vis sea level rise. And I got to meet someone who was visiting, who um, works on these issues in Louisiana. Um, and there's a statistic that's often bandied about, about Louisiana, which says that every hour, Louisiana loses a one and a half football fields worth of water to rising seas. Um, and this person was telling me about how he frequently would sort of get a phone call from a, a journalist or a documentarian or somebody coming down to Louisiana because they'd, they'd like to learn a bit more about this and they recognized him as somebody um, who might know something. And that too often, these phone calls tended to go a bit like, can you take me to the football field of water? Um, in other words, that, um, that we need to be careful about too narrowly defining um, what a sort of aesthetics of climate change looks like, feels like, and so on. 
who it involves, where it involves, how fast it's happening, etc. Um, before I before I pause here, I mean, um, some folks may be familiar with the uh, the post-colonial literary scholar Rob Nixon's idea of slow violence. Um, that is, violences, environmental and other violences, um, that um, challenge um, the functions of spectacle to, uh, to, to capture, represent, um, bring them um, to mind. Um, and, uh, and so one of the things that Nixon writes about is the, the importance of, of other imaginative tools for getting in touch with things that may not always obey the protocols of, uh, of the spectacular. Wonderful, thanks Killian. I think it's, it's really interesting to think about uh, how we perceive these types of things because ultimately you know, our thinking and about the environment is filtered through you know, how, what we're exposed to in, in the media and in, and in social discourse. And I think it's easy to almost become paralyzed when you, when you do hear statistics, for example, as you were saying Killian about the football fields in Louisiana, or there are similar statistics about deforestation in the Amazon, you know, that every day X amount of hectares or X amount of football fields are lost. And it's easy to become, well, particularly, for example, the, st the statistic I read out earlier that um, greenhouse gas emissions have doubled from, you know, over the last 50 years or something. It's very easy just to hear those statistics and, and feel helpless or paralyzed or, or very disconnected from reality of this change. Um, I'd like to, uh, before turning to you, Danny, I'd just like to read a, a quote um, from Dostoevsky from one of your articles, um, uh, your article being entitled The Human Amidst the Animals, uh, which talks a little bit, bit about the, the role of science in the popular thinking. And it's this, reason and science have always performed and still perform only an auxiliary function in the life of peoples and it will be like that till the end of time Nations are formed and moved by some other force whose origin is unknown and unaccountable. I think I found that particularly pertinent in, the, in discussing environmental ethics and environmental humanities, where this where the sort of scientific force, if you like, in this discussion is so dominant and should be so fundamental, uh, and, and sort of think why why it hasn't been more, I guess, widely adopted or or. or uh, widely acted upon. Um, turning to you, Danny, to, as a useful antidote to these type of, uh, sort of overwhelming scientific statistics, um, I think you would like to share a chapter from your new book about a quite a personal narrative and a personal example of environmental destruction, which could provide a really useful grounding for us in this conversation uh, and not to forget the personal in the sort of uh, overwhelming scientific, if you like. Thanks, Sam. Um, just before I start, um, I wanted to say something about um, statistics. So right at the beginning, Sam, you quoted Chris Dickman, our colleague at the University of Sydney, Chris Dickman's estimate of um, a billion vertebrates being killed in the black summer fires. Uh, he's now uh, he's now revised that to three billion. Um, but um, as important as that figure is, uh, when I was thinking about it, I found myself um, just 
it's un it's unthinkable, right? It's unthinkable. Three billion is unthinkable. And so I did this little exercise, um, which I just was quickly looking up because I'd written it down in this book. Um, and and what I did was I imagined that if you just let your mind rest for ten seconds on each of those things, only ten seconds. It's barely enough to imagine that it had a life, that it had relationships, that it had, you know, life ways. And then you paused and you moved on to the next. That would take 950 years. Doing nothing, nothing, 950 years. It's like 11 really good human lifetimes doing nothing but thinking about those 3 billion animals. And so um, I think the challenge for us is how do we how do we make palpable in a way that can inform us effectively and inform our actions rather than abstractions? Because abstractions tend to cause abstractions, not actions, I think. Um, so the, the, the excerpt from, um, from the book that I want to read, um, this is a book that I wrote um, partly, I started it during the fires and then in the immediate aftermath of the fires. And I chose this chapter to read um, this evening because um, it's perhaps the most philosophical chapter in the book. Um, I mean, the whole book is philosophical, but, um, and, and with the theme of this event, like philosophy on the ground, it's really my attempt to take philosophy that's been very, very important to me, um, but to bring it into that, you know, kind of 10 seconds embodied understanding. So just to locate um, this chapter, um, I, um, prior to the fires, I lived with two pigs, um, Jimmy and Kate. And on the 29th of December, when we thought that the fire was going to engulf our place, uh, they were taken by the woman who had originally rescued them and they went to stay with her. And three days later, the fire engulfed um, their place and Kate was burnt to death and Jim survived. So this is, this is about Kate. I can't quite remember all the details. That is one of the losses, the disintegration of memories of someone you love that happens in the months and years after they are gone. As I recall it, Katie came and bumped up against my leg with her huge face as I was pottering around in her and Jimmy's run. As was so often the case, it took me a while to snap out of my absorption in whatever I was ruminating on and understand that she had something very specific to tell me. She was persistent and eventually I got it that they had tipped over their water. She was thirsty. I put down the bucket, walked out the gate, made my way through the tennis court turned garden, over to the tap at the end of the hose and turned it on. While the water was running, I came back into their run and crouched on one side of their large green plastic trough, Katie on the other side water rising in the space between us. When she put her mouth in the cool water and began to drink, she looked right at me. Amid so many shared moments, this one stands out. In the two or so years we had lived together, 
Katie had never looked at me right in the face. She would stand facing in the same direction as I was, but about half a meter in front of me, her nose pointing forward, one eye turned back and looking at me sidelong, I think they call it. That morning though, her eyes were on mine, face to face, as she drew the cool water into her body, the water that she had so desired but needed me to fetch. I said the word water, my human way of marking this sequence of our responding to each other. She looked at me and drank. Emmanuel Levinas, whose writings on ethics and our responsibility to attend to others' suffering emerged from his own experience as a Lithuanian Jew whose entire family was murdered in the Shalat. Most philosophers in the Western tradition who have thought about ethics have argued that if we are going to act ethically, we need to identify the right principles that people ought to follow. For Levinas, our sense of being ethically obliged is much more concrete and immediate. His starting point was a simple observation about what life is like for most of us most of the time. We each move through our own lives and concerns regarding everyone and everything else as part of our world. People or animals or environments show up as meaningful, useful, useless, interesting and so on, depending on what I find meaningful, useful, useless, interesting and so on. Then, in the midst of being absorbed in a world that is my world, consumed by what I want and what I'm, I'm up to, sorry, then in the midst of being absorbed in a world that is my world, I encounter the face of another person and the world as I experienced it, my world, consumed by what I want and what I'm up to, breaks open. Another person's face stops me short. Why? Because a face can never be just an object in my world. The face is the site of another's experience, never reducible to what I know or what I want. Katie, like me, is looking out at her world, always exceeding what I make of it. Again and again, and always otherwise, the face makes it impossible for me to turn the world into my world. This, he writes, is the beginning of ethics. When I first read Levinas, I thought I had come across the most important idea in the world. I thought I had found in him a thinker who invoked the world I wanted to be part of. But Levinas insisted that only humans have faces. Only humans have this infinite and irreducible view out to the world. And what followed from this was that only humans are capable of calling other humans to this place we call ethical responsibility. Only when we are face to face, human to human, can we say not simply, I want you, but I want you to have the life you want. I want you to be. But then there is Katie's face over the water and I wanted her to be. And when I saw Katie's charred body lying near the flattened ruins of the house where she had run when the fire came, I wanted her to be. I wanted to find myself face to face with her again. Even more than that, even if I could never see her again, I wanted her to have a view out onto her world. And it's not just Katie or Katie's kind or even animal kind. Lately, after the long dry months, the huge fronds of the tree ferns that live all around us have changed from an almost iridescent green to burnt brown, not fire burnt, 
but from the slow scorch of unrelenting sun and the lack of water from the inside, the slow violence of drought. We thought they were dying, but one of our neighbours, who knows plants well, explained that they had pulled the water back from their fronds and into their trunks so that they could last out the dry. When the rain finally came, it was as if they started to let themselves exhale a little, hints of green coming back into the fronds. Still mainly brown because it was too early to trust that the rain will continue, but not quite so wary in their contraction. I have an inkling of their faces. I'm trying not to anthropomorphize here, but it's hard not to because humans, at least humans who speak my language, have taken all the best words and guarded them jealously for ourselves. All the words that signify feeling, wanting, knowing, responding, aspiring. At best, everyone else gets to react. It's not that there are no other ways of being human. In recent years, Indigenous writers and friends have given me access to worlds in which humans live amongst other beings with an appreciation that they are also making their way about the world and making sense of it. Their human world is, in this sense, one teeming with diverse and related subjects across the spectrum of being and well beyond the human. But those ways of understanding or living the world and the people who occupy them have been relegated to the margins of what counts as sound knowledge, at least to the Western systems of knowledge that still dominate much of the world. So as long as I'm using this language, there's really no option than to use words that we humans apply to ourselves and claim as human affordances and capacity, but to use them in the spirit of resistance. To trust that when we give them over to beings other than humans, to Katie or to the ferns or to the ecosystems that are trying to persist as temperatures soar and water stops, those words will also have a chance to change, to lose their selfishness. And perhaps they will even have something to offer us in turn. Who knows what it might be like if we shared those capacities and the chance to define them with others. It's a tough call though, and not only because of our linguistic habits. Once you see that other others, not just human others, have a face, the responsibility to their lives becomes infinite. Every time you make them an object, every time you block out their faces, you betray them and yourself as well. I have never gotten over something else Levinas wrote. Sometimes he admitted, we cannot bear that others have a face. We cannot tolerate what that would demand of us. So we want to murder them. It's just too much of a burden to remain alive to the truth that all these other beings feel what it is like to be thirsty or what it's like not to have the space to move or experience the loss of the others they nourish and are nourished by. Sometimes it's easier to kill them than to stay face to face. These are the extremes, to answer the call and to be infinitely responsible to others or to kill them because we can't bear the responsibility. The path that seems most difficult to take is perhaps the possibility that lies before us. To acknowledge that we will inevitably fail in that infinite responsibility to all those whose faces look out to this world and to still remain present to their faces and respond imperfectly. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Danny. I really appreciate uh, you sharing that with us because it was such a wonderful passage and I know it is very personal to you. So thank you for that. And I think it's also, as I said, uh, 
briefly to, to, to set up the reading, it is a really, really valuable antidote to acknowledge these personal narratives within a sort of really global and, and overwhelming phenomenon of, of environmental change and catastrophe. So thank you, Danny. Um, moving on now to our sort of final broad area of discussion, um, which was just sort of predicated around some of the uh, ethical uh, dilemmas regarding climate change and objects of ethical responsibility in the environment. I'll just briefly set up this topic and then hand over to Killian and Danielle. So just to briefly outline some of the sort of, in the word classic ethical dilemmas, which are often put forward when we're talking about environmental destruction and environment and, and climate change more broadly, often questions oppose along the following lines. Firstly, how to balance the rights and responsibilities of the developed and the developing world, which I think is quite interesting because it's the idea that it's the developed, it's the world which is now developed, for example, the US, Britain, Western Europe, which was responsible for a lot of the pollution and a lot of the practice sort of ingraining the practices which are now perceived as problematic, that has created uh, the situation we're in sort of teetering on the brink of, of genuine irreversible catastrophe. Um, and it's the question of whether or not it's fair for these same countries to impose uh, a sort of code of stricter environmental ethics on the developing world. Secondly, is how to assess our responsibility to future generations who must live with the climate we are shaping today, which uh, sort of moves into talking about how the objects of ethical responsibility in the, in the environment are so sort of slippery to use a, a colloquial term, whether it's future generations or, uh, or animals or, or even you know, inanimate, well, not perhaps not inanimate objects, but the vegetation and then even landscapes in general. Uh, thirdly, the difficulty of narrating responsibility where our background theories of responsibility assume intentional actors who commit acts. And finally, as I, as I uh, alluded to earlier, the objects of ethical responsibility in the environment and how slippery and intangible they are in comparison to sort of traditional theories of ethics, which assume sort of two human or, or, or multiple human actors. And it's the, these final two about uh, theories of responsibility and objects of ethical responsibility, which I'd like to focus on with Danny and Killian, because it's something which falls more within uh, the wheelhouse of their work. Um, and so given that we're a bit shorter on time than what had been anticipated, I might just throw it open to you both generally, just to make some comments based on your work about firstly, um, so ideas of responsibility vis-a-vis -vis the environment. And secondly, uh, how we might conceive of the objects of ethical responsibility when thinking about the environment. I know we've alluded to it, uh, you know, obviously all the topics in this discussion are, are intimately related, but um, so there any further thoughts that you guys had on this? Thanks, Sam. And thanks for that reading, Danny. That was really great. If it's okay, Sam, I think I might, yeah, um, pick up on this question of, of responsibility um, vis-a-vis -vis, um, kind of um, conceptual tendencies and the conceptual possibilities of climate change, right? One of our like um, um, key terms today. Um, and it seems to me that, you know, the, the great kind of, one of the great 
part of the great promise of a concept like climate change or a, clim or a concept like the Anthropocene um, is that they have this kind of marvelous power to, to drive us to think um, and imagine at scale and to imagine um, potentially unexpected um, connections, forms of solidarity, even forms of like political praxis and so on. Um, at the same time, right, they, these concepts also have um, this, um, this hazard, right, that lots of people have, have, have remarked upon um, of rendering, um, rendering the, the subjects of climate change um, and the objects of climate change abstract, right? So I, I mentioned Estrita's work before. I'm, I'm borrowing a, I'm borrowing a quote from her from her book that I that I think uh, is germane here, if obliquely. Estrita um, writes, much more needs to be made of the fact that we is probably the most fraught word in the English language. She writes, particularly in, in the Anthropocene, with its growing indices of stratification. We need to unpick and confront the slide into homogenization of women, of humans, of objects in general. And I want to, I want to leave um, or, or finish this point by pointing toward a poem and a performance by the kind of um, incredible um, polymathic um, Marshallese woman, Kathney Jetnil Kitchener, and the Inuk writer and activist Aka Nibiana. They've got a poem called Rising, which you can find, which they've got a beautiful video of and you can see it online. And I think the movement of the poem sort of mobilizes some of these tensions that I've just been, been talking about. The poem begins with um, a series of stanzas that enact a kind of sisterly exchange between General Kitster and, and, and Niviana, um, making island to island connections, forging solidarity through this experience of shared vulnerability that feels to me like one of the really like exciting possibilities of um, climate change thought. Later in the poem, its tenor changes somewhat and the addressee becomes um, a, a second person, you, um, another kind of reader, maybe a Western reader, maybe a comparatively wealthy reader, maybe somebody comparatively culpable in um, the processes driving sea level rise. And one of the latter stanzas of the poem goes like this. Let me bring my home to yours. Let's watch as Miami, New York, Shanghai, Amsterdam, London, Rio de Janeiro, and Osaka try to breathe underwater. And it seems to me that um, imaginative projects like this one, which do that sort of difficult work um, of acknowledging and, as it were, reinforcing um, the ties that bind us um, more and more and in more ways than ever, while at the same time saying the trouble of responsibility, of culpability, et cetera, is work that, um, that, um, that we really need right now. I'll leave it there. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Killeen. Um, Danny, moving to you, I'm sorry to ask you to sort of talk about such uh, broad and, and compelling topics in such a short amount of time, but would you like to just uh, elaborate on ideas of responsibility and uh, sort of, yeah, as I've sort of 
termed it colloquially, the slippery nature of ethical responses of the objects of ethical responsibility and how we might render them perhaps more tangible? Um, well, I'm actually not going to answer that question, either of those questions, the way that I had planned to, because uh, I'm inspired. I want to give space for Q and A, but also uh, I was inspired by Killian's gesturing towards a poem. And rather than um, than my speaking, I'm going to read a little excerpt from a poem that I have been reading um, every day for about the last ten days. This is um, Rilke's eighth elegy, so I'm just going to read from the very beginning and the very end because I think it speaks. Uh, to your questions uh, far more poignantly than I could. So the poem begins, with all, all its eyes, the creaturely world looks out into the open. Only our eyes are turned backwards and surround plant, animal, child, like traps as they emerge into their freedom. We know what is really out there only from the animal's gaze, for we take the very young child and force it around so that it sees objects, not the open, which is so deep in animals' faces. And then the end of the poem. And we spectators, always everywhere, turn towards the world of objects, never outward. It fills us, we arrange it, it breaks down, we arrange it again, then break down ourselves. Who has twisted us around like this so that no matter what we do, we are in the posture of someone going away? Just as upon the farthest hill, which shows him his whole valley one last time, he turns, stops, lingers. So we live here forever taking their leave. And if you didn't hear that, that was one of my donkeys singing in the background as I said the last words of those poems. So I guess my answer is, how do we reconsider? Uh, I don't like to think of objects of ethical considerability, but those who are ethically considerable, I think that we learn other ways of being open to the world. Wonderful, thank you, Danny. Um, I just have to see what my donkey, why my donkey is crying out. <laughs> That's fine. That's, uh almost perfect uh, interruption to the nature of this talk. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much to both Danny and Killian uh, for those insights. And, I, and I'm sorry, uh, as I said, to have to rush you through the final part, but I do want to get to the Q&A because we have some really, um, really interesting questions coming in on the chat. It seems to me that we haven't yet found the language or the listening to communicate the urgency of climate stewardship. Our governments do not seem to see the need to take much action. What things do you see we could say that might make the difference? That, that, that is the question. That is the question. Like, how do we make concrete, make present, make real what remains abstract? Uh, and, and I think so many of us are asking that question and trying to answer it. And I know that in my own work, I, you know, as I tried to um, make present in the chapter that I read, instead of writing about Levinas and the face and abstract and, you know, five people will read it um, in a 
obscure journal, I'm, I, I'm trying to make my writing and my speaking much more immediate and personal and, and to connect the immediate with the big picture. So that's, that's how I'm trying to do it. And I, you know, artists are doing it. I'm working with the, the artist, Janet Lawrence, um, you know, performers, theatre people are doing it. My colleague, Michelle St. Anne at the Sydney Environment Institute. I think, you know, there is, there is no answer to do to how to do it. Um, but for me, making palpable, making concrete, and the other side of it is recognising that it's not just that people happen not to um, be listening. There are very concrete material interests in impeding the listening. Um, you know, the fossil fuel industry, the, um, the animal agricultural industry, the Murdoch press. Um, there are, you know, we are, not in an, we are not in a free space where it's not a democracy of communication. This is a, a heavily institutionalised space where there are many investments in not being present to what's happening and in ensuring that other people are not present to what's happening. If I may just um, follow on from what, from what Danny is saying, um, I completely agree this is the question. I'll answer it in a, in a really small way, but a way that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, and that is this kind of thing about how we articulate agency or how we narrate events. Um, the historian Peter Reed's got this book from the 90s called um, Returning to Nothing, The Meaning of Lost Places. And one of the kind of points that, that he makes in, in passing, but that I've been dwelling with a lot recently, is that too often um, the ways that we frame uh, change, uh, changes like sea level rise, implies a kind of passivity or inevitability to what's happening, right? So places vanish or places disappear. Um, I think there's always um, a lot more work to be done to think about how um, and when to articulate forms of culpability, connections between what's happening on the ground and the sorts of things that I think Danny is, is, is also pointing us toward. Um, so that's a, that's a very limited um, way, but I think it is, it is a way. I think there's more work to be done. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And thank you for your question, Susie. It's a, as I think Danny says, it, it, it really does go to the heart of, of, this, of the whole matter of, of how we make you know, how we affect this change in, in social values and social thinking. Um, so my name's Aileen, yeah, it says so, but I'm a Noongar woman from Western Australia and my research is cultural causes of climate change. So um, hence, you know, you will have noticed my questions in the chat. But the, one of the questions, one of the, um, one, of the, one of the things that comes up for me so often in, in, um, in conversations in academia is, um, the reversion, for me, it seems like a reversion to poetics, the immense emotional um, response that we um, obvious to, you know, the mass extinction of life that's happening around. And I mean, I use my, myself, I use poetry to cope. You know, um, that's how I, you know, I, I, I write my emotions into um, poetry and prose so it doesn't turn up in my, um, my academic work. So um, I'm, I'm wondering um, if, if either of you have thought about this and, um, and, it, and if we can sort of get 
is there a chance we can get caught up in you know our emotions rather than um, um, just um, to do what needs to be done you know and think about um, you know climate change very very reasonably and strictly and in a way I think this question relates to what you said earlier Sam about you know how we um, mental damage by imposing rules you know whether it's on you know in our own countries or on developing countries but I think that um, yeah like it seems like there is this um, there is this um, way of um, for me emotionally deal with it and then deal with it reasonably and do you think that there is a possibility that um, um, of just getting caught up in our emotions in the poetry so I'll, I'll again leave it open to whichever Danny or, or Killian will, will want to respond first but I think you, you were breaking up a little bit uh, Aileen but the sort of crux of uh, the, the question is is whether or not well is this idea of uh, the relationship between emotion reason and and whether emotion can I guess be a help or a hindrance when, when dealing with these big questions of uh, environmental change and damage? So I think it's a very complicated question, Aileen, and a very important one. Um, I, I don't think that for myself, I don't think separating reason and emotion um, is truly descriptive of how we are as human beings. I think that's part of the way of making sense of humans that has been somewhat problematic. Um, and, and I think we also know, um, you know, whether it's from, well, for people who, who I learned from, you know, Spinoza or Damasio, the neuroscientist, that there is no action without emotion. Like without, without emotion, no action is possible. Um, so I think emotion is, it, we don't have reason and we have emotion and we don't have reason, we don't have action that follows from reason. Emotion is entangled, is, is, is always part of our reasoning process. Um, that said, I think that the type of, um, and, and we'll maybe pass to Killian with this, um, the type of hyper-affectivity hyper that has come to characterise contemporary politics, um, exacerbated by social media, exacerbated by uh, reality TV-based politics, exacerbated by popularism, um, that these type of big, quick emotions that, as you know, Rousseau wrote wonderfully, um, that they become an end in themselves, that there's a kind of pornography of emotion, that we somehow are satisfied with the emotion itself. I think that's highly problematic. Um, so that type of emotion, I think we have to be wary of. But I think the idea that we could uh, dismiss or separate ourselves from emotion and act rationally is just not a description of, of how we are as human beings. Thanks, Danny. Um, yeah, thanks a lot for the, the question, Aileen. Um, part of me feels the need to respond by saying I, sh I share your, your question. Um, this is also something um, that preoccupies me. Um, I guess the way I'll answer is, is maybe not to talk about emotion per se, but to talk about imagination. Um, because a lot of the time when I'm thinking about poetics in the context of, of the things that we're talking about, I'm thinking about the ways in which imagination seems like something that we actually really need in order to, um, to conjure um, 
well, on the one hand, to create some kind of access or some kind of relation um, to beings, processes, and contexts um, that the rest of our tools might not really be helping us out with. Um, and second of all, for conjuring um, futures, deep futures, pasts, and, and, and so on. I think I saw our, our colleague um, Sue Reed in the, um, in the group at one point. Um, she's written beautifully about deep sea mining and the need for a rigorous imagination to come to awareness, to attend to um, sites that reason simply isn't helping us attend to. Um, and so I think that, that the promise of a kind of rigorously imaginative poetics in, 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 in situations like that is actually doing really, really important work. Thanks very much. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Killian. Thank you, Eileen, for a really good question. So my question, thanks, Killian and Danielle, for your talk, was just that if we have waited, or like if we do wait until it's a matter of our own survival, until we like address climate change substantively, um, will there have really been much change in our actual environmental ethics? And can these kind of practices that began as you know, a push from a counterculture or counter ethics relating to the environment end up just being a continuation of a kind of same mentality of anthropocentrism. And does that even matter if we end up, you know, saving the planet in practice? Thanks very much, Caleb. Um, I think that um, this question takes me a little bit out of my depth, and so I, I don't want to answer it in a, in a facile manner. But I will just say that, that I, I think that um, climate change has already rendered life um, precarious and more than precarious um, for millions of, millions of people and indeed billions of, of more than human others um, around the world. Um, so I suppose, I'm not sure how we would, I'm not sure how we would fix the point at which um, things became like sort of truly dire or something like that, you know, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure, um, um, or I wonder how useful it is um, to, 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 to think in those, in, in precisely those terms. Um, so I think yeah, I think I think that's what I would that's what I would say about that. I think I think that it is it can be useful um, to imagine ourselves toward um, forms of apocalypse um, in order to sort of plumb um, what feelings, ideas, and imaginaries can arise for us. Um, but I think it's really really um, complicated, and I think that these are these are realities that beings on this planet are, are already. Um, mired in. Mm. Can I answer that question? Because um, if you don't, um, um, although there have been lots of tipping points that we've passed already, because, um, um, you know, my research is to find out what is actually happening um, to our home. The planet is our home. And um, although there are lots of tipping points that have been passed and 60% of the species on the planet have already disappeared, um, we have seven years in which to get um, carbon emissions down to zero. If we do not get carbon emissions down to zero in seven years, there is no hope of life 
on Earth um, past the next, say, 500 years. So there is very definitely um, a date and a time. And the clock, I think um, there's, a, there's a clock in Times Square. Yeah, I think it is in Times Square that is already counting down, if you want to check that out. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aileen, it's, and thank you for jumping in there. It's very much in line with uh, the sort of conversational uh, goal for this, this type of, uh, sort of how he envisions this event. Um, so my question is, how can we recognise nature's otherness and our responsibility towards non-human or more than human others if we are by definition part of nature? And so on the flip side of that, does not a recognition of nature's otherness also require the appreciation of some kind of separation between the human and the non-human? And is it possible to recognise this difference ethically? Just a small question to end with. I don't know that I, that I would as such advocate recognising this thing that we call nature as other, except to the extent that our tendency has been to dichotomize that um, the only way that as 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 you know Levinas was challenging the only way that we recognize um, others as morally considerable is when they are like us right and so there's something about recognizing that we are not the whole world we don't our way of seeing our way of knowing our way of loving our way of relating our way of hurting isn't the only way that that happens. So for me, that's that's the importance of the move to otherness. It's just to decenter us. It's to take us out from being the ones who order everything else. Um, once we've made that type of move, then I think the next move is to recognise, and it's a terribly overused word, but it's a word that does some work for us at the moment, is to recognise our entanglement, our interdependency. There is no such thing as the human abstracted from everything else. And yet we are these particular types of creatures that have something that we call reflexivity, that we, that we make sense of the world, and so, I, I, you know, I don't think it's a matter of just saying, okay, now we're going to be like everything else. We're no longer going to have these capacities to reflect and to make sense and to have hypotheticals or imagination as Killian was speaking about. I'm not saying that other creatures don't have imagination, but we do have these particular ways of being. But to somehow dance between this, this set of capacities of understanding and recognizing and then re-embedding ourselves. It's a, it, it, it's, a, it's a different way of being in and of and, and other than at the same time. It's a, that's not a particularly articulate answer because what I'm trying to do is to gesture towards this kind of messiness of the way in which we are embedded in the world. Um, but I completely agree with you that um, that continuing to other as if we are separate, and this goes to Caleb's question, is only going to exacerbate the type of extractivist relationship that is at the heart of the environmental and the climate catastrophe. Um, yeah, that's my attempt to answer a very complex question.
Yeah, hi, Killian and Danielle. Thanks for the awesome talk. Very, very insightful and thought-provoking. Um, I just, my question is sort of one to try and ground the discussion a little bit. Um, so I sort of thinking about the human ego and its purpose, why it evolved. And my, my question is sort of how are we to reconcile the human ego with um, the sort of the necessity of placing ourselves not at the top of the hierarchy? How, how are we to sort of in our day-to-day -day lives navigate this seemingly important self-importance for survival and this sort of the right way of living, you know, to sort of live as one with nature instead of on top and above it. So I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about ways we might do that in our day-to-day -day lives. I think, that, I think that question is actually very close to the last question. It's about reconciling this very distinctive way that humans are in the world. You know, there are many ways of being human, but you're, you're pointing to one of them. With, um, with this imperative that we now face uh, to not dominate, to not hold other everything else as object for us. Um, and I, maybe I'll just pick out what you said um, about, you know, the ego has been useful for our survival. Well, the ego is now on the side, right? The ego is now killing us and everything else. So, you know, pragmatics 101, we've got to learn a different way of being or, or it's, or, you know, it's over for, for us and for most other beings. Um, but I think you're looking for something a little bit, like you said, a little bit more grounded. Um, and and my, my answer would really be about the, the joy and the, the, the grace of care, that, that when you care for other beings, when you, you know, when you want other beings to be, when you, when you use this power, that we have, and we do, we have, you know, we have all sorts of affordances that other beings don't have because of the way we've organized the world. But when you allow yourself, and I'll just, very, very small anecdote, and I apologize for going over time, but when we were building the house that we live in, um, one day the, build, the foreman called me and said, he knows I'm vegan, et cetera. And he said, is it okay if I bring up the guys some bacon and egg rolls because it'll make them really happy, they'll really enjoy them. And I remember thinking at the time, if those, if those blokes, and they were all blokes, if those blokes could have the experience of the joy of being with a pig and having a relationship with a pig, that like pales any pleasure that they could get from three billion bacon and egg rolls. That that joy of caring for, of using this capacity that we have to care for, to nurture, to be a steward for, I think it's another, it's another way of using these capacities that we have. And it's not only about being good, it's not about being generous, it actually is the deep, it's the most deeply nurturing thing that we can do for ourselves. So that's my answer.
Thank you very much, Danny. I think, and thank you for the question, Daniel. I think it's a really good, well, it's a bit of a theme that, that has been developing throughout the discussion of the need to return to sort of personal grounded narratives to really make sense of how we relate to the environment, how we might change how we relate to the environment, rather than getting lost in sort of huge meta-narratives or scientific uh, descriptions of global environmental uh, change. Thank you very much to everyone, firstly, for coming. Uh, I re we really appreciate the time that you've taken uh, this evening. We hope you found it interesting. I know I certainly have. Um, and I'd like to say thank you as well to Danny and Killian very much for your time. Um, and we really, really appreciate uh, everything you've done um, to make this event possible and really just to share some insights. And I think the sort of philosophy on the ground event, it, it, the idea is to sort of, well, Phil Sock's idea in this type of series is just to look around the people that, you know, people associated with the university or community actors and, and unlock a bit of this sort of knowledge and experience we have in applying philosophical thinking and just sort of general reflection um, to, to everyday issues. So thank you to both of you and, and, and thank you very much to Genevieve and, and, and Michelle at, at, at um, the Sydney Environment Institute for your help in organising. That concludes the event. Thank you very much to everyone for coming and for your questions. And we hope to see you um, at, at subsequent events. Thanks everyone. Thanks Sam. Thanks Killian. Nice to hang out with everyone. Yeah, it's so nice to see everyone. Thanks everyone. Seriously, it's been really, really fun. You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney.